Good morning. This morning I'm going to be reading from 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day, and that we, may not, and that we might not be burdened to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For when we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have him nothing to do with him, that he may, not, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Heavenly Father, Lord, in these next few moments, God, just as we prayed, or as we sang earlier, Lord, may we come to an extremely clear realization that we are in desperate need of you. Lord, in fact, we need you, as the song says, every single hour. Lord, we are so dependent upon you and your presence. So dependent upon you and your glory in our lives. Lord, that we dare not forget. Lord, we do not deserve your mercy. We have done nothing to merit your grace. But Lord, in your deep and abiding love, you have chosen to shed your grace abroad in the hearts of your children. God, this morning I pray, Lord, that we would never forget the amazing opportunity you have granted us to open your word and to hear from you this morning. God, may our hearts be receptive. Make our hearts receptive that we may hear your word and that you may receive the glory from it. And I pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So it can be easy to fall out of rhythm say with your sleep if you've had small children or you've been around small children then you know this is this can happen especially among infants and we use this term often we will say things like well it's a little bit difficult because they've gotten their nights and days mixed up right um that happened with i think every single one of our children at some point in time they got their nights and days mixed up it also seems that that occurs again when they turn into teenagers they get their nights and their days mixed up because i'm ready to go to bed and they want to talk so I, it's just, it's one of those things, right? So they can get their nights and days mixed up. But it's not exclusive to children. 
Um, it is possible for even adults to get their nights and days mixed up. As many of you are aware, uh, my family and I drove down to Houston for an appointment with Katie Joy this past week. And um, in about two and a half months ago, I made um, hotel reservations. I'm, I'm not one of those ones that's like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a man. I can drive all the way. I seriously need sleep. So I'm perfectly fine with driving away, getting a hotel room, and then getting a good night's rest and getting up the next day and driving. I I'd, would rather be safe than dead. So um, I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. So about two and a half months ago, I booked our hotel rooms. Um, and I booked a hotel room for Jackson, Tennessee. I thought that'd be good. We'll, we'll drive to Jackson. We'll get a good night's rest. We'll drive the rest of the way um, the next day. So I uh, did that. And then on uh, Wednesday of last week, we got everything together. We got everything uh, done. We got all the car packed. We got everything finished. And as we were getting everything put together, I got an alert from the, the company that, that I made the reservation through, just letting me know that it was confirmed, that we're good, and everything. I thought, oh, that's great. So I, I, I saw that. I put it in my pocket. I started to walk away, and then I stopped, and I went, wait a second. And I pulled the phone back out, and I looked at the confirmation. So about two and a half months ago, I must have either been tired or just distracted or something, but instead of booking my hotel for Jackson, Tennessee, I booked it for Jackson, Mississippi. Um, it's only been a week, but Luann has not let me live us down yet. It's probably never going to happen. But um, it was too late at this point to, to rebook the hotel or even get the money back. And honestly, driving four hours out of the way, it, was, it would cost me more in gas than it would to just let the hotel room go. So I ended up having to let the hotel room go. But because of that, being, well, just being who I am, I thought, well, if it's between being safe or spending more money, I'm just going to drive. Uh, so I said, I'm going to drive. Y'all just get comfortable in the car. And so I drove. We, we left Bowling Green at um, 7 o'clock um, yeah, in the evening on uh, Wednesday evening. And we pulled into my parents' driveway at 9 o'clock the next morning. And um, I was tired, uh, as you can imagine. Of course, we get there. My mom and dad are up. They had a good night's rest. Everybody else in the car had a pretty decent night's rest. I did not, and everybody wanted to talk, and everybody wanted to hang out, and all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And I was so tired, but I drank a ton of coffee and stayed up the whole day and went to bed that night and got a pretty good night's rest and was able to kind of get it reset. Turn around a week later. We're in Houston. We had Katie Joy's doctor's appointment. We're going to drive back, got a hotel, or getting a hotel in Texarkana. But if you don't know this, which you, I don't know why you would, but it, it, this past week on the way back, there was some pretty significant weather in parts of Texas, and it flooded a lot of the roadways, so we, I had to divert a lot to go around. Um, and because of that, uh, and because of the weather, I'm guessing, I could not get a hotel room. So we left Houston at 5 o'clock on uh, Tuesday evening, and I pulled into my driveway in Bowling Green at 9 a.m. the next morning. And so I stand before you here today as a man being held up by the Holy Spirit and caffeine. <laughs> and I still have not gotten my days and my night. Like right now, I feel like it's the evening, honestly. It's just my, my mind is so messed up right now with my time because it's very easy with something like that to get out of rhythm. It's very easy to get out of rhythm in the way that we, um, in, in our sleep and in everything else. But you know, there's a way to live the Christian life there's an approach to living the Christian life that's spelled out in His Word. And it is possible to spiritually get out of rhythm. It's possible to spiritually confuse your days and your nights. To get things 
backwards, to get out of step with the way it's supposed to be. The blessing is that when that happens, God has placed his people in a community of faith. He's placed us within the church that we might, as we seek to grow as disciples, we can hold one another accountable. And we can live the life the way we are called to do so. See, in the church, accountability is an absolute necessity. And redemption is an ultimate priority. Accountability is an absolute necessity, and redemption is an ultimate priority. See, in this day and age, we're prone to avoid terms like accountability. And honestly, um, I know this, that when we use words like accountability or holding people accountable, um, we get really nervous. People get very nervous because that means I'm going to be held to some standard. Who are you to hold me to any kind of standard? Because that's the way our society thinks. The problem is, is this concept has crept into the church. The concept's crept into the church over maybe just the last several decades. I'm sure it's been in one form or another. But in the last several decades, you will hear it and it sounds something like this. My Christianity or my worship or my relationship with Christ is a private matter. But this is really a recent phenomenon in the church. See, as we seek to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are meant to do so in community. We're called to do it within the church body. See, your relationship with Christ and your growing in Christ and your growing as a disciple is not a private matter. The church has a corporate responsibility. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So he says, now we command. So the Apostle Paul has switched gears. As I said, Pastor Greg did an amazing job um, in, in the first few verses of chapter 3. And now the Apostle Paul has shifted gears. And he says, now. So he's, he's changing to a different subject matter. And he says, now. Now, I find this interesting. You know, it's one thing to give somebody a command. It's another thing to tell somebody you're going to give them a command before you give them a command, which is what Paul's doing here. He says, now we command you, brothers, and then he gives them the command. It's, it's drawing attention to the fact that there is some serious stuff going on here. The apostle Paul is not playing around at all. In fact, he's not playing around so much that he says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so interesting because the Apostle Paul is just that. He's an apostle. The Apostle Paul has the right to simply command them to do something. He is an apostle. He has the right to write a command in Scripture that we read and we follow. Because an apostle speaks on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was called specifically by the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does the Apostle Paul feel the need, instead of just saying... Now, brothers and sisters, I command you, and then he just says it, but he adds, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason is because what Paul is about to command and what Paul is going to talk about in these next few verses is extremely important. I wouldn't say it's the most important thing because I'm always worried to say that, but it is, in fact, extremely important for the people of God. It's as if Paul is saying, like, like you would do, if you've had children, what you would do with your kids, like... Um, 
When you would, you remember uh, they would used to tell you, you know, if you really want to get your kids' attention, you got to get on their level, right? So you get down eye to eye with them. You say, hey, look at me. Look, no, look up here. Look at me. And you say, I want you to look at me till I'm done talking to you, right? That's, that's the way this is given. Paul's saying, now, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's saying, hey, Thessalonians, and by proxy, hey, Eastwood Baptist Church, this is Jesus talking to you. This is, these are the direct words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am giving you a message from Jesus. Say, why are you emphasizing this so much? Because listen to what the message is. It is not, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That would be, of course, great, and that would be wonderful, and it is true. But that's not the command that the Apostle Paul gives. He says, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. That you keep away from any brother that is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. So, what does he mean by keep away? What, is, what does this term refer to? Well, as you've heard me say before, and hopefully it's a, stay, a saying that'll stick in your mind and it's something you remember forever, you can say, well, maybe he means, or maybe he means, or maybe... When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. He says, keep away from, which means keep away from. It means avoid. It means stand aloof from. It means to distance yourself from them. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now, I want to say this up front. This is definitely not a command for what we would refer to as excommunication. He's not telling them to put them outside the church. Why do I say that? Well, it's simple. We'll see that in verse 15. He's not asking them to put them outside the church. This is different. But it is a clear action showing Christ's disapproval for what they're doing. And the way they show that is through the church. It's through the body. This word here for, for avoid or uh, this word for keep away, uh, to stand aloof from, is used only here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20. There are those who can make a claim or do make a claim. Maybe you're in this room this morning and you're saying, you know, this idea of kind of putting somebody off to the side, shaming them or disciplining them, is not very Christ-like. Four things about this. First, this is not a command given to the people of God on how we are to interact with those who are not a part of the family of God. This is not a command for Christians on how they, we should act toward those who are not believers. Okay? How do I know that? Let's look at the verse. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother. So these are believers. This is how you interact with one another in the church. So this is very much an internal matter. This is not external. So this is not 
Christians looking at those who are not Christians and making them feel somehow that we are superior to them and looking down upon them because of who they are. Because frankly, the issue here is Paul saying, brothers and sisters, you need to deal this way with other brothers and sisters. Paul's problem, Paul's problem is not with how... His problem is not, or he's not explaining with, to them how to handle lost people. Because frankly, when those who don't know Jesus Christ live in sin, they're living exactly according to their nature. We should not be surprised by this. So that brings the second thing. The first one is that this is not how to deal with people outside the faith. But in fact, it's how to deal with people inside the church who claim the name of Christ but then live in a manner that is contrary to the way Christ is said to live. So these are not non-believers living as non-believers. These are supposed believers living as non-believers. They're acting as though they don't know Christ. They're living as though they don't know Christ, even though they claim Christ. So that's the first two things. It's not about how to deal with those who don't know Christ. It is, in fact, about how to deal with those who do say they know Christ but are living in sin. But the third thing is this. When we look at this and we say, but that sounds very unloving. It sounds very unchristlike. The problem with saying that it's unchristlike is that it's extremely Christlike. Believers holding other believers accountable for sin is extremely Christ-like. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, we are told that if a brother has sinned against you, you go to that brother, you share with them this thing, and if they receive what you say, then you have won a brother. But if they don't receive what you say, then you go with them with two or three witnesses, and you share it again. And if they still don't listen to what you say, then you bring them before the body. And if they still don't receive what you say, then he says, then you put them outside the church as an unbeliever. It's the term we use, church discipline. Every single Southern Baptist church I know of has it in their bylaws, but about 0.005% of them actually practice it in any case, way or fashion. But it is an actual passage. You say, well, why do you say it's Christ-like? Because it's Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Those are the exact words of Jesus. Not that it matters because all of the Bible is the word of God, but those, if you have a Bible that's like this, those words are in red. Jesus said it directly. So it is not only right, but it is in fact Christ-like. It's a direct command from Jesus himself. But fourth, what we have to recognize from this is that while this passage and Matthew 18 talk about holding people accountable for sin, it is not for the purpose of kicking someone out. It is, not, it is also not for the purpose of kicking a brother while they're down. Just as in Matthew 18 and in this passage, we'll see in a moment, the purpose of this action is fully, solely, and completely for redemption, forgiveness, and restoration Restoring a brother and sister into right relationship with Christ and his church. That's the whole purpose. It's not to ostracize. It is to sanctify. The whole purpose is for people to come into a better and closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we hear this, it kind of sets off our modern sensitivities. That's why I wanted to explain that. So we hear this, we're like, ooh, I don't like that. 
I don't like the idea. Because when we hear that, the picture we get is like somebody holding a Bible, screaming and spitting over the top of someone who's on the ground going like this, like, because they know they've done wrong and they're being beaten. That's not what he's describing. What Paul's describing is believers walking around in the church acting like they're right with God when they're not right with God. When they're living lives that are in open sin and they're not right with God. So how do you know it's open sin? Because of what he says as an example. We'll see that in a moment. But it's what he says as an example. So this is not going around trying to find who's sinning. It's obvious. That this passage, those who are living in sin in this passage, it's obvious that they're living in sin. It's not something hidden. It's not something you have to go looking for. It's right there in front of you. He says... Keep away from any brother or every brother. So this lets us know that this isn't just one person. This is several people. Um, and then he's covering um, that are doing this. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with tradition that you receive from us. They're walking in it. Uh, again, this is important. This is not something that someone messed up one time or even two times. The concept of walking in this means it is a constant, persistent action of their life. This is a consistent activity in their life to the point that it has become habitual. It is, it is something they do daily. Okay, So he says they are walking in this. What are they walking in? Well, the ESV here says they are walking in idleness. If you have an older translation, your translation might say they are walking in disorderliness or in a disorderly fashion. Because the word for, the reason I think that's better is because we have a, a little bit of a different definition of what the word idleness means or being idle. Disorderly, however, we know what that means too, but this is a word, this word for disorderliness or, or in a disorderly manner. The word is used to refer to soldiers who are marching, you know, in the military when they march to a cadence, right? This word is used to refer to the soldier who can't get the cadence right and is out of step with the rest of the company. So they are disorderly. Um, they're not in step with everyone else. Or as I use in the open illustration, they're not in rhythm with the way they're supposed to be. So they're living out of rhythm. So he says they are out of step or they are disorderly and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So there's something that they're not doing. We don't necessarily know what it is just yet, but there's something they're not doing that... Paul told them to do already. Actually, he already made it clear. It's so clear, in fact, that he doesn't say the teaching. He says the tradition, which is even different. That means it's something, uh, it's something you should know, something you should be very familiar with, something that should be so ingrained in you that you can't forget it. So the obvious truth is you're not forgetting it. You're just ignoring it. That's, that's Paul's deal. So he says the tradition that you receive from us, verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul says, look, you know that when we were among you, we didn't live off of you. We didn't do these things. So Paul is describing the way he lived among them as an example. for. So this begins to give us the idea of what their problem is. He says, you, you're living in a disorderly fashion. 
You're living out of step with what you have been taught. Another way of saying it is you're living in sin. So you're living in sin. You're living out of step with the way you've been taught. And here's how it is. Because you know we imitated this for you. So he's letting us know a little bit about what they're out of step in. He says, when we were with you, we were with you night and day. You notice that in your translation? It doesn't say day and night. It says night and day, which is actually the opposite of the way we would normally say it. It's the opposite of the way anybody would normally say it. The reason he's saying that is because he's drawing attention to what we know from the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul. Is that the Apostle Paul would reason with them in the evenings and things like that. And during the daytime, what was he doing? He was working. He was a tent maker. The Apostle Paul provided for himself. He was bivocational, if you were, uh, if you will. And so that's what he did. And he did this, and he tells them why he did it. He tells them, we did this not because we had to. In fact, we have every right as servants of the Lord, as ministers of the gospel, we have every right to expect you to take care of us. However, we don't because we wanted you to imitate us in this way. Most likely because, one, they're young Christians and he wants to set an example for them and he knows what they're uh, probably going to do. But two, there must have been something, and we don't really know this, but there must have been something within their society or whatever that would, that would actually make them kind of not want to work for some reason or another, and so Paul thought it best to be an example before them. Uh, he thought it best to live that out. And he says, even though, in verse 9, it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now listen to this. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Now the tense of this means when we were with you, we repeatedly over and over and over again gave you this command. So that's why it's a tradition. He said, you've been told this a lot. Um, we, we give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, I don't know about you. I was raised this way. I've raised my children this way. Um, but I heard this phrase a lot growing up. And I use it a lot, don't I? I use this phrase a lot. They, they're like... <laughs> Yeah, when, when we're out in the yard and we're working and we're out there five minutes and apparently someone is dying because they need a drink of water or something like that um, and, and they're, you know, their back's killing them and I'm like, you're a teenager, your back's not killing you. My back was killing me when I woke up this morning but that's not the case for you. And then I will always get to the point where I say, you need to learn how to work and work hard. You know why? Because if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I've heard that phrase my whole life. I believe that's absolutely true. There's also a direct application of that from this passage. In the context, what's going on here? Well, what Paul's got is an issue. You remember how the book of Acts, how they worshiped together. It says that they met together daily, and they listened to the apostles' teaching, and they participated in the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right? So what are they doing? They are taking part in the breaking of bread. We call it the Lord's Supper. And when we call it the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper is not what they, I think, would call the Lord's Supper. So we participate in the Lord's Supper. We, you know, we eat that little bitty tasteless wafer. And then um, we have the, uh, the little bit of juice that if it was left in the wrong closet, it's not very Baptist. And that happened a few months ago, if you didn't notice that. The, um, that's not... What they referred to as this. In fact, what they did was modeled off of the Passover. 
you remember, we even quote this. I quote this when we do the Lord's Supper, right? It says, and on that night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat down at the table with his disciples and he broke the bread and he gave it to each of them and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, right? So he broke the bread. That would be very hard with that tiny little wafer. This is a full loaf, right? So he broke the bread, he gave it to them. Then, do you remember the little phrase? And then, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? So what, was, what were they doing? It was a meal. It was a full-blown meal. And when they ate the bread, they did this. And when they drank the cup, they did this. How often? As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this was something they did all the time. Why? Because it said they met daily from house to house and they broke bread together. They were eating together. In, Corinth, in the book of Corinthians, we know that they would meet together and have meals. We know in Acts that there were those who were poor, who, they, who couldn't necessarily provide for things. And so it said that the wealthy and all those others would bring what they had to make sure that everyone had enough and they would come and they would eat together. And so, as they're coming together, what's this issue Paul's got? Well, the issue Paul's got is there are people in the church who, are, who have decided that it is not important for them to work, even though they could, and they would rather just depend on the goodness of their brothers and sisters around them. So Paul says, you've got people showing up here to eat, but they're not working. And if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. You say, what is that? That means, this is not like this general proverb it, I mean, it is a good proverb, but it's not a general proverb. When the Apostle Paul says, there are those within, you, uh, there are those within your body who are not working, but are living disorderly lives. They're living out of the tradition, out of the teaching that we gave you. They're living this way. He says, and if they won't work, don't let them eat. Here's the way this works. This is very practical for them when they hear it. Everybody shows up for the meal. So think it's in your home. A bunch of people show up for the meal. Everybody's there, but everyone knows that this one person over here could be working, but they're not. They're just there to mooch off everybody else. And when they show up to eat, and everybody's going through the line, when they get to this person, this person's ready to eat, and the people look at them and go, and they won't serve them. They won't give them food. Say, well, that's just mean. No, it's not mean. It's calling sin what it is. It's the body letting a person know that they are out of step with Christ. And if you are out of step with Christ, then technically you are out of step with his body. And so it's a way to do that. So he says, don't associate with them. In fact, we have given you this command over and over again. It's a tradition they received from him. Not only does he say he said it a whole bunch, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he actually tells them this. He says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and to be dependent on no one. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we told you this when we were with you. Then in 1 Thessalonians, he reminds them again. Then in 2 Thessalonians, he hears that they're not doing it, and he has to remind them again. So he's telling them this over and over again. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important that we hold one another accountable? See, we're supposed to live our lives according to the Word of God, according to the way He has called us to live. This doesn't mean, as I said, we're not running around looking for people who are in sin. That's not what this passage is about. It's about people living openly in sin in the body. 
There are too many churches today that shirk the responsibility of making disciples. And part of that is holding our brothers and sisters accountable for the way they live their lives. Just as they should hold us accountable for the way we live ours. Too many have given up that responsibility and they don't hold each other accountable for the persistent, unrighteous, unbiblical living. May that never be true of us. May that never be true of God's people. So why are you emphasizing this so hard? Because Paul emphasized it very hard. He says, I'm an apostle and I command you this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you know this. This is your job. This is what you're supposed to do. But the reason that we do this, it's not because we enjoy pointing out sin and it is not because we enjoy watching other people squirm. It's not even because we, we like doing this at all. It is simply because disobedience has a destructive result. It has a destructive result, not only for the individual, but for the body. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Now, how did he hear it? I, I, I can't tell you how many commentaries I read where they're like, well, how did Paul... And they spend pages on how Paul heard this. He already said that he sent Timothy. And Timothy came back and gave a report. That's how he heard. Timothy showed up, saw that they were um, living in this way, but then... Uh, that they, you know, he was praising them for their work of faith, their labor of love, steadfast of hope, all those things. But at the same time, he says, "How, uh, Paul, I need to let you know, though. Something's going on. And what does he say? For we hear that some among you walk in idleness or disorderliness. You're, you're out of step with the way you were taught. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's interesting. Busy body. That's a word that I don't hear very often anymore, but it is certainly a word I heard growing up all the time. If no other reason, then, you know, you go to a very, very, very traditional Southern Baptist church, you show up as the pastor's family, and one of the first things that people want to tell your father is, hey, you need to watch out for so-and-so, he's a busybody. You want to watch out for so-and-so, she's a busybody. And I was always like, wow, I thought it was good to be busy, Right? I mean, that's the answer we're supposed to give these days. Why? How's work going? Oh, busy. Duh. It's work. So it's supposed to be busy, but that's not what he says here. He says, but you're not busy at work, but you are busy bodies. You're not busy at work, but you are busy bodies. Literally, it is, you're not working, but you're working around. These are people who are making a whole lot of noise, but they're making it in the wrong place. You're working, you're just not working in the right place. See, Paul's issue is they're not working, but they are working. They're just working in the wrong way. To put it another way, he said, the word, or the word busybody can be translated meddler. You're meddling. See, busybodies are those who are Instead of busying themselves with their own business, they were busy concerning themselves with other people's business or business they did not need to meddle in within the business of the body or within the business of the church. See, what happens is that Paul says this. There are people who are doing this. We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is again. He's, he's very clear command. We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ that these people... So now he's not speaking to 
the people who are doing it right, he's actually speaking directly to those people. And he says that they do their work quietly and they earn their own living. This is exactly what he said almost to a word in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, when he told them to live this way. You remember why he told them to live this way? He said, so that you may walk properly, as opposed to walking in disorderliness, like he said here, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He basically says you need to live this way because otherwise you do not give a good witness for the Lord Jesus Christ to the people around you. So he commands them to do this. It's interesting too, the ESV here says um, the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. The Greek is literally that they might eat their own bread. That they might eat their own bread. See what Paul's saying is there are those in the body who were able to work but they didn't. But what's his bigger issue? He says that they're living in a disorderly manner. They're living in a way other than what is right. They are out of step with the way that God designed for them to live. See, they were not living as they knew they should, specifically here in regard to work. But the the point that we should take from this, yes, of course, is that you should work. But the point that we should take from this It's something that is interesting in light of Christians because we have a tendency to do this. I think everybody does. And I'm certain it's a phrase that you've heard before. It's so common, in fact, it's been quoted for a very, very long time. Geoffrey Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales said, quote, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. See, they were not busy about their work, so they became busy bodies. See, what happens is, it can be and is often true that when people begin to cause strife and discord, they begin to cause problems within the body and being disorderly and acting as busy bodies, it's usually because they're not busy about their own work or what they have been individually called to do. Each person within the church. If you're a believer here this morning, and you're a member of Eastwood Baptist Church, then the Holy Spirit lives within you, and He has gifted you with specific gifts to use for the body. And they're to be used for the purpose of encouraging and lifting up the body. So each one has a role. But when we get out of step with Christ, and we, we stop fulfilling the role that we're supposed to fulfill we will start filling a role that we were not intended to fulfill. Put it to you this way. The church I grew up in, um, my dad had been the pastor. There's a long story behind. We were there before, but he became the pastor. Um, um, But I don't remember how many weeks he had been the pastor, but we used to stand the back door. There was only one way, shotgun-style church. There's only one way in and out. Um, And so you had to go out the back door, so everybody walked past the pastor and his family. And it was always dad, mom, me, sister, brother, every week. And there was a lady who would come through, and every week she'd say, Brother, I'm, I'm obliged to tell you that I have a problem with this. Next week, I'm obliged to tell you I have a problem with this. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And, and it, you know, some of you have met my father. You'll know that about week four, she said, Well, brother, I'm obliged to tell you. He said, Can I ask you something? She said, Yes. He said, why are you obliged to tell me? She said, well, Brother Tony, 
I'm pretty sure I'm the only one here, but, you know, I, I, I just want to let you know that, that I operate well. I have the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> if you're wondering where to find that, that's in First Hesitations chapter 3, verse 12. Because it is nowhere in the Bible. Because what happened? Did that woman, if she's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, was she gifted with a gift that was intended to uplift and exhort the church? Of course she was. That's the whole purpose for what, uh, why we're here as a part of the body. But see, she wasn't busy doing that. So what did she become? She became a busybody. She became a critical busybody who did nothing but sow, up dis sow discord and cause problems within the church. Why? Because you're always going to be busy. You just may not be busy at God's work. You may be busy at your own. And the Apostle Paul says, um, some of you are walking in a disorderly manner, and you're busy, but you're not busy at work. You're busy bodies. See, a busy body... When we're not doing what we were individually called to do within the church, when we're living in sin in our own lives, we become a busybody who meddles in the affairs of others. And you don't accomplish your cause, calling, and ultimately you cause disruption in the body. And the Apostle Paul says, You are to have none of that. Church, you're to have none of that. That's not supposed to be a part of who you are. In fact, I'll tell you this, that when we think about certain things that are, that are a problem, I'll tell you this, there, there are things that bother me, but there's one thing that I absolutely cannot stand in the church. The one, one of the things that I absolutely cannot stand is gossip in the church. Can I tell you? One, you don't have the spiritual gift of gossip. There's no such thing. But what I can tell you is this, when you come into the church and you open your mouth, why not open your mouth and praise the Lord? Don't open your mouth and tear down your brother. You're here to speak words of wisdom and encouragement and words of glory and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, not words to tear down your brother or sister. The purpose of your life here in the church is not to sow discord and to cause disruption. It is to live according to how you have been called to live, to live out your gifting within the body, and to do so and not cause disruption or problems. Say, so, so my job is to just be here and get along? Sort of. Because in the end, what is the purpose of the church? The purpose is to worship God, to work in His kingdom, and with as much as is within us, we can live at peace with all men. We are to, we are to seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, Thessalonian church, I've heard there's something going on over there. There's something going on over there that's not right. Some of you are living out of step, and because of that, you have now begun to cause problems in the body. Church, he says, it's our job to call that out. It's our job to hold one another accountable because we are to be the people of God concerned with his glory and his holiness. But then there's something else in this passage that we must never ever forget can we put that up on the slide the third point is that the church has a goal of redemption it's always 
about redemption. Look at what he says in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do, do not go weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. And here he goes again. Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So as for you, brothers, he's talking to the other ones, not the disorderly ones, but the ones who are living rightly. And he says, do not grow weary in doing good. It's literally Paul's way of saying, and as for you who are living right, keep living right. Don't get tired of doing it. Just keep living right. And if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Why? Because he told them repeatedly when he was with them. Then he repeated it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now he's repeated it again. So it's as if Paul is like a parent saying, I have told you this over and over again. So church, you have heard this repeatedly. So he's telling them, if someone reads this letter and does not obey what we are telling them to do, this is your response. Again, this is not a one-time action. This is somebody who is consistently living in sin that they know is wrong, but they're still doing it. He says, take note of that person. What does that mean? I don't know. Except take note of them. It sounds public. It sounds clear. But he says, take note of them. It's to single them out, to, 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 to make it clear. How? Well, he says it again. Take note of him or that person, and have nothing to do with him. Have nothing to do with him. Again, it does not mean excommunicate, or like put them outside the church. We're still talking about a brother. He's not saying you excommunicate them. When he says have nothing to do with them, it means to exclude them from daily interaction of the church. From this corporate meal, that's the direct application here, from this corporate meal, to hold them out of it. To keep them away from it. For what reason? Now this next phrase, we hear it, and our, and our modern sensitivities are just bothered by this. But in an ancient culture of shame and honor, and there are still cultures like that around today, but in an ancient culture of shame and honor, this is not odd at all. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Well, he needs to be ashamed of who he is. No, he's made in the image of God. This is a brother in Christ. This is not, he's not ashamed of who he is. But make no mistake about it, believer. If you're living in sin, if I'm living in sin, I should be ashamed of my sin. If you're not ashamed of your sin, there's a bigger problem at work. You should be ashamed of your sin. If you have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, you know, you're sitting at the dinner table, they're acting up. Usually you say what? Hey, one more time. Maybe you give them a chance. I don't know. But they keep acting up, and then what eventually happens? You know what? What? Go to your room, and you separate them from everyone else. Why do you separate them from everyone else? Well, because you know everybody else is in the room. They're fellowshipping. They're laughing. They're having a good time. Why do you separate that child from the rest of the group? Is it because you're mean? No. It's because you want them to learn something, and the only way you can get them to learn something is for them to take note of it. And the only way to get their attention is to separate them from the group, and they go, oh, I've been separated. I wonder why. And the first thing is, well, maybe I've been separated because they're just mean. But then eventually you get to talk to them, and you explain it to them, and over time the hope is that what they understand is they get separated when they act that way because the way they're acting is shameful, and they should feel ashamed for the way they're acting. That's what Paul's saying. 
You separate it from them. You exclude them from that so that they feel ashamed so that what? Look at the last phrase. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul's not saying that the goal is to watch this guy fall down and then just keep putting the boots to him. The goal is to warn him. What's a warning? A warning saying, you're going this direction. Turn back. Please turn back. So, so it's a calling of mercy. It's a calling of redemption. It's a calling of grace. So should the church hold one another accountable for sin and, and hold one another accountable to live and lo- uh, to, to live according to love and for good deeds? Absolutely we should. Why? Well, because disobedience to this is damaging both to that person and to the body. And why should we do it? The purpose is not to just kick them out. The purpose is not to get rid of them because they're annoying. The purpose is to help them realize what they're doing wrong so that they can be drawn back into a right relationship with Christ and also be in a right relationship with his bride, the church. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason that Paul draws this out. Now, I'll tell you, there may be some in this room this morning, the truth is, is the concept of redemption is something foreign to you. You don't really grasp it. And the, reason, uh, the, the idea of redemption is to be bought back. See, your sin and your unrighteousness, your living for yourself, it's got you bound. You're, you're, you're enslaved to it. You have been enslaved to your sin. You have no way of escaping it. And you are, sent, you're, you are headed toward an eternity apart from Christ. And yet God in His great mercy sent His Son to die for you and to rise from the dead. You had a debt that you couldn't pay. So the debt you owed, you could never pay. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus came in and He paid your debt. And by paying your debt, He bought you back. That's what the word redeem means. He bought you back. But it only works if you receive that redemption. It only works if you receive that redemption. You can come to Christ even today, but you have to receive what He has done for you. You have to call out to Him and ask for His forgiveness and His mercy, and He will give it to you. But believer, as we continue to seek to be all God has called us to be, we're called to be a people that holds one another accountable. If you're a member of this church and you say, well... The way I live my life, the, the choices I make, my relationship with Christ, that's my own business. I just want to tell you, as your brother in Christ, as your pastor, it's just simply untrue. It's just not biblical. You can try to, you say, well, so-and-so said, doesn't matter what so-and-so said, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that as believers, we were meant to live in community with one another in the church. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the writer of Hebrews says, but we encourage one another, and even so much more as we see the day approaching. That's why we live in community with one another. We need encouragement. We need encouragement both to stay right, and we need encouragement to get right. We need all of those things. Disorderliness, being out of step with Christ, is a problem. It's a major problem. It causes destruction. It causes disorder. It causes every type of thing. 
And it can be a significant hindrance to the church, to its ministry, and to the move of God within his people. Say, well, it's just me. It's just my issue. Yeah, but if you're a part of the body, it's the body's issue too. I can promise you this. If my hand hurts, it's my whole body's issue because my hand hurts. And if you're in this body, you're part of the body, and you've got a problem, don't think that it only affects you. It affects everyone. It affects the entire body. See, if you're a member of Eastwood this morning, and you need to get right with the Lord, if you need to confess your sin, if you need to cry out for forgiveness, this is your time to do it. I mentioned earlier, and and there's no reason to move around it, Just like the revival broke out and has broken out in places like Asbury and others. May the Lord do that. Is that something you want to see? Is it something you want to see? Do you want to see it in this community? Do you want to see it in this church? Then you have to see it in you first. It has to begin in you. It has to begin in me. Revival begins because God's people come before the Lord, confess their sin, lay themselves bare before God, and then plead for God to step down. And like I said, it's not something we can make happen, but it is certainly something we can hinder. And we don't hinder it because... We have certain programs, and we don't hinder it because of certain things, um, the, the, the different translation we use. We don't hinder it because of our worship music. We don't hinder it because of any of that. We hinder it because we have sin in our lives that we refuse to acknowledge and come before the Lord and plead with Him to forgive us. That's what confession means. It means to agree with God, to agree. So if that's the case, may He begin it in us this morning. May these steps be filled with God's people on our faces, pleading with Him for forgiveness, calling out to Him in confession, and pleading with Him for revival. Believer, this happens when we begin to confess sin. It happens when we begin to do this. Is there another person in this room, brother or sister? Is there a person in this room that you may need to go to and ask for forgiveness? Say, well, that's really personal. Yes, sin's personal. Revival is personal. Revival is hard. See, we need to be the kind of people that hold one another accountable. We need to be the kind of people who ask for forgiveness and the kind who give it quickly. We need to be the kind of people who seek to be desperate to see God move among us. See, we want to cry out for revival That means we're crying out to see the glory of God show up among His people. We're crying out for the glory of God to show up in our own lives. But do you know if you have sin in your life or sin in the camp, when the glory of God shows up, that is not something you want to be around. Because God's glory does something in the presence of sin. And it's usually bad. We desire to see the glory of God. We desire to see God come in power. And if that's the case, then children of God, we need to get on our face before the Lord. 
Cry out in forgiveness and confession. Cry out that God would do that. Make it right with your brother and sister in Christ. Not so you can just be right but just so, uh, with them, but so you can be right with your heavenly Father. Jesus himself said, when you come to make an offering before the altar and you know your brother has ought against you, you leave your offering, you go and make it right with your brother, then you come back and you worship. If you have something between you and someone else or something between you and the Lord, let it go this morning. Let it free this morning. Because if you desire to see the glory of God, then you have to get on your face before him. I heard one professor say it this way, and I love this. He said, most often the reason that we miss revival is because we forget that we want the ecstasy of revival, but we forget that revival doesn't begin with ecstasy. It begins with agony. Agony over our sin, agony over our need, agony over our brokenness. And then and only then can we create the opportunity where God may in His gracious mercy show revival in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our community, and to the far-reaching ends of the earth. So this place should be filled with people this morning, pleading with God and saying, God, bring revival to my own heart this morning. I confess my sin. Forgive me. God, send revival in my own heart, in my own family, and in my church. And when God's people live orderly lives and cry out that the glory of God may fall, then we just wait for His blessed grace to do so.